You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid conversations with healthcare industry's top physicians, executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. I am your host, Summer Gilbert, and I am the Director of Marketing and Branding here at Pacific Companies. And today I'm greeted by one of my favorite co-hosts, Mr. Chris Call. Today we are honored to have one of our podcast alumni back with us on the podcast, Dr. Daniel Bustos. He's an ophthalmologist currently practicing in Texas. Dr. Bustos has shared with us a couple of his crazy cases, which I highly recommend you go back and listen to. They are amazing. On today's podcast, we talked to Dr. Bustos about the pandemic and how it affected his life as an ophthalmologist. And then we also get into cataract surgery, um, PPE for the eye, and also about the rise in telemedicine with ophthalmology. And then finally, he has one crazy case to share with us. So without further ado, here is our episode with Dr. Daniel Bustos. Well, first, Dr. Bustos, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Happy to be here. And Chris, thank you for co-hosting. I love having you be my partner, partner in crime doing this. Don't mind being your wingman. So Dr. Bustos, just because we just got over and I, I think we're still going through it, this crazy pandemic you're an ophthalmologist, if I say it right. I have to yep. say it like five times in a row to get to get that word right. What do you feel about, you know, the masks and um, the PPE that we're doing using to guard from this this virus that's going around? So you want my take on whether I think it's working or whether it's useful? Yeah. Is it useless or is it, is it useful? To be honest with you, the science does not bear out that it's useful. Uh, even the, the best mask you can wear is an N95 respirator, which is only going to prevent 95% of pathogens reaching you through that mask. And that's assuming that you have that respirator precisely and, uh, expertly fitted to your face, which most mm-hmm. people don't and, uh, and aren't. Uh, so really we live in a world where the masks were, you know, were worn at the beginning of the pandemic because we didn't know what we were facing. As we became more acquainted with this virus, knew, knew its characteristics uh, and knew the degree to which it caused morbidity and mortality, it became very clear that the masks really treated um, someone's fears um, Mm -hmm. more so than they actually prevented transmission. Uh, You know, this is not to say that if you feel like you want to wear a mask, you should or shouldn't. I think you, you can go right ahead and do that. But it did little to nothing to stop the spread of this. Uh, But between that uh, and other um, kind of uh, society distancing um, measures, we've kind of done more harm in some ways than we have good. Yeah. Do you think it is because people have access to their eyes so easily and they're constantly touching things and touching their eyes? 
Well, I think certainly the constant touching that people do really does negate any kind of, of, of help that a mask might do. Uh, you know, as soon as we, you know, take our, you know, microorganism over hands and start touching a mask or anything we have on our face, we've kind of negated any use that mask might do. And then you're exactly right. The eyes are a, are a nice uh, kind of, not necessarily hidden uh, route of entry, but uh, one less thought of that all we have to do is just kind of put our finger next to the corner of our eye and rub a little bit. And we've put whatever we have on our hands in our eyes and that, that can be absorbed through your conjunctiva. And there you go. Now, do we have um, you know, solid evidence that we're seeing uh, significant roots of transmission of, of, uh, of the SARS-CoV-19 virus through the conjunctiva? No, but no one's doing those kind of uh, experiments anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, the answer is yes, we can see significant transmission through the conjunctiva. Um, and it's not something that anyone's really thinking about or, or taking precautions for because A, the virus is ubiquitous. The masks aren't, aren't really doing anything to stop it anyway. But I mean, I think if we just practice common sense uh, hygiene, we would not be putting our fingers in our mouth, not be putting our fingers in our eyes. We would mm -hmm. not be putting our fingers in our nose. Those are all orifices. Washing our which, hands. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Washing our hands, hand gel, and just kind of using some common sense, we would be uh, shutting down a lot of the transmission of anything, you know, whether that's COVID-19 or or, you know, streptococcal, you know, pneumonia or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I'd like to uh, ask Dr. Boutros something, kind of switch gears a little bit. Um, you're an expert in cataract surgery. Um, and should patients wait for cataracts to develop or should they take a preemptive action and have the lens replaced before it develops? What's your thought on that, given that you do so many of those procedures? Well, that's a great question, Chris. Uh, cataracts start forming, forming the moment we're born. So, uh, you know, anyone, all of us in this, in this, in this um, podcast here have some degree of cataracts. The question is whether it is affecting your day-to-day uh, -day functioning with your vision. So cataracts cause difficulty with uh, functioning, with visual functioning and glare conditions, such as driving at night in the bright sun or in the rain. Cataracts make it more difficult to see small things, either up close or far away. Cataracts also uh, cause you to need more light to see what you're reading or what you're doing. So my take and what I tell my patients is when one or more of those symptoms starts to make it more difficult for you to do what you want or need to do on a regular basis, that's when you and I should have a discussion about getting your cataracts out um, because I like to balance the risks and the benefits. Yes, cataract surgery is very effective, very safe. In, in trained surgeons' hands, you have very good outcomes, uh, but it's still it's still surgery. So I always want to see the, the benefits from that surgery outweigh the risk. And so even though the risks are, are, are minimal and someone who's very good at doing this, it's still taking a risk if you're not going to get any benefit out of it. So I'm, I'm the kind of person that, that wants to talk about, is this affecting how you do? Are you, are you driving less at night because you're afraid of the glare? Are you uh, having to use magnifying glasses because you can't read your pill bottles? Um, are you turning every light on the house all day long because you can't see anything? If those are the cases, then yeah, let's talk about getting them out because your function is going to get so much better and the benefits are then going to clearly outweigh the risks. That being said, Chris, there are plenty of people who, you know, who are maybe, you know, mid forties, early fifties who don't have a significant cataract, but 
are choosing that cataract surgery really as an option, uh, as an alternative to getting LASIK because with cataract surgery, we can accomplish what you can accomplish with LASIK and more because there are lens options to correct your, uh, not only your far vision, but also your intermediate and up close vision. And for those that patients that are potentially listening to this podcast, um, can you briefly describe who should get LASIK? How long does it last before you need a tune-up? I've had LASIK. Or should they get the lens replacement or both? It's kind of a, a difficult thing for patients that are lay people and not clinicians. Right. It's, it's kind of a bewildering little set of events here. Uh, for someone who's considering laser or considering vision correction surgery uh, to reduce their dependence on glasses, the first question you have to ask yourself or, or the first question you have to consider is how old is that patient? So if you are under the age of 40 and you're looking to have reduced dependence on glasses and you don't want contacts, LASIK is a very good option. Uh, if you are 40 or above, you are starting to enter that zone where you are uh, experiencing presbyopia. Presbyopia is the increasing difficulty seeing up close without glasses. That happens to everybody. I, I think it's more ubiquitous than, than taxes. It's death and presbyopia. It really should be. Everyone over the age of 40 starts to experience that. The lens stiffens, so you don't. it does not uh, bend and change shape as much, which allows you to see up close. So the more it starts to stiffen, the more you're reliant on reading glasses or at least pulling your reading material further away from you. Mm-hmm. So if that, if you're that kind of person, uh, you're, you're at that age, you're experiencing that, then I think, and you're going for your first round of vision correction surgery, I think it's very reasonable to consider doing a lens replacement surgery. We call it lens replacement because at that point, they don't really usually don't have clinically significant cataracts, a lens replacement surgery, because then we can accomplish what we can do in LASIK, which is uh, subtract or negate your overall need for glasses. But then uh, premium intraocular lenses uh, allow people more freedom from glasses up close and at an intermediate range, which is a problem that people experience with presbyopia. They can't see the books. They can't see their computers. And those lens replacements then can offer them clear distance vision and much more independence from glasses at a near vision. And for the population out there, there's different ethnic groups and so forth. Are cataracts uh, more prevalent in certain groups that, you know, for the people that are listening, like, oh, that might be me. Or is it just across all, all people? Cataracts are pretty ubiquitous. At what rate we form them is very different. Um, there's not a necessarily a higher uh, prevalence of cataracts in any kind of ethnic uh, group um, or nationality. We do see different kinds of cataracts in different kinds of ethnic groups and nationalities, but by, by and large, it is an age-driven uh, process that is helped along by exposure to ultraviolet light, smoking, diabetes, poor, uh, poor health, and poor uh, living choices. So it's really just a function of, of how your, your eyes are responding to the exposures you've had in your life. Uh, so I think anyone can consider lens replacement surgery. Uh, and, you know, after having a consultation with your ophthalmologist, then those, that kind of, a kind of, a endeavor can then be tailored to what, um, is particular about your eye that may make you a good or not so good candidate for that. Okay. Yeah, interesting. And for the, let's say there's some medical students out there that are considering, you know, which residency should I go in? 
what type of personal characteristics do you think would make a great ophthalmologist? I mean, I'm sure you, you consider yourself a fairly good ophthalmologist, but what type of uh, temperament works for your type of specialty? Well, I think number one, attention to detail. As you might imagine, we operate in a very tiny space. Uh, we, uh, measure, uh, we measure the eye in terms of microns and in nanometers. So we, we deal with very small numbers and very precise measurements. So someone who has attention to detail uh, is, I think is a, makes it, would help make a good ophthalmologist, but also somebody who, who wants to um, deal with clinic patients. As an ophthalmologist, I am a eye surgeon, but I'm also a clinician. So I see patients in clinic and I operate as well. And I think the good ophthalmologist would be someone who can, who can or at least who wants to try to relate to patients. Now, that, that being said, there are plenty of ophthalmologists who are you know, surgeon hamsters or just run the surgeon wheel and don't really care to be in clinic. And that's, that's, that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. But in, in my case, uh, it's paramount for me that I know how to understand my patient, how to read them and talk to them and, and allay their fears and, and, and be a good clinician because then, then my patients have better and happier results. And I, I don't have problems and my patients spread the word because they're happy. So yeah. I think someone who's, who wants to take care of patients and, and, and be a clinician for them also would make a good ophthalmologist. And I know we discussed uh, at the beginning about maybe some interesting insights you have on some crazy cases that you've seen through the course of your career. I was wondering with the last 10, 12 minutes of the, the podcast we've allotted for you, if you go into one or two of those cases to kind of show people what you're faced as an ophthalmologist. And before we get to that, what one more thing, uh, <laughs> Daniel Bustos, just because it's such a craze and I see them everywhere at Target, um, just everywhere. What is your take on blue light glasses? Uh, blue light glasses are becoming more of a thing. They're essentially uh, comfort. You know, for people that sit okay. in front of a computer all day long, uh, blue light glasses tend to make people a little more comfortable. It okay. cuts down on uh, people who spend a lot of uh, time in fluorescent or artificial lighting, it helps kind of cut down on glare and make things a little less harsh. And some people who are prone to migraines actually really love those things. Okay. Really so they're not hurting your eyes. Nah, it, no, it's no. just, okay. It's real light. Nah. Okay. Let's yeah. get on to the cases. The first one I had uh, when I got to Texas here about seven or eight months ago, uh, I had a patient coming in for a cataract evaluation. And uh, this is a time where they, where someone has referred them for cataract surgery. They come into my office and they meet with counselors. They meet with people who measure their eyes. Then they uh, meet with technicians who do a bunch of ancillary testing before they get to me. So I had a gentleman who uh, at his very first stop in my clinic before he got to my exam room um, uh, was told that he was, he was sent here for cataracts. And uh, when the first person I saw in my office who, who measures the eye for cataract surgery and gets the measurements we need to calculate lens implant powers, she put him in the computer and did some scans of his eyes and, and really couldn't find a lens, couldn't find a cataract. All she found was a, just a bunch of strange signals and it just looked completely wonky to her. So she sent, sent him on down the road, down the, down the factory assembly line to all the people he needs to see before he gets to me. And meanwhile, she comes and talks to me and says, I, I don't know what's going on. I, I, you know, we see people for cataract evaluations 
hundred times a day. And we always get very predictable measurements. We get predictable wave scans and we see the lens and we see the measurements. And this person, I just can't get anything on. And so I asked her, you know, uh, has he had any surgery before? Well, he said, no. Has he had any trauma before? He said, no, no trauma before. Um, has he had any eye conditions in the past, congenital eye conditions? No, not that he knows about. I'm like, okay. So I kind of said, well, let's just see what happens. So I sent him, sent him down the line and he had a few more stops before he got to me and a couple other people uh, down, the, down the assembly line of, of workup. Uh, technicians came and said, I can't get measurements on this. Uh, nothing's happening on this. And so I said, okay, well, let's just see what happens. Um, he was uh, probably a 65-year-old gentleman. He's a farmer. Uh, never really been to the doctor before, much to speak of. Uh, and when he got into my chair, um, I, I proceeded to ask him some questions because I really want to dive into his history more and figure out what's going on before I took a look at him. I like to get a good history because 90% of what goes on in medicine, you can often diagnose with just with history, good history. You don't need the exam. The exam is Absolutely. just a conf confirmatory, uh, confirmatory uh, step in the process. So I started talking to him and I, and I said, you know, we're having difficulty finding out what's going on with your right eye. I'm going to look at it, of course, in a minute. But, uh, you know, have you had any surgery? No, never had any surgery. Have you had any trauma to the eye? No, never had any trauma. Um, any diseases, any infections? No, not that I know of, although it was red for a while. And I'm like, well, let's, let's talk about that. Um, I said, when it was red for a while, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, about 15, 20 years ago, uh, you know, I was out in the cornfields and I, I got hit in the eye and it was red for a while and then it just stopped being red. I'm like, okay. So when you said it was Red for a while. Is there anything else bothering you? Was it painful? Did it affect your vision? It wasn't like, yeah, I couldn't see very well for a while, uh, but I finally got over that uh, and it was fine. So I'm like, okay, something's going on here. Uh, he's in a cornfield. His eye got red. He couldn't see. Uh, he denied pain, um, ostensibly because he's a farmer and just deals with stuff. But mm -hmm. uh, I finally said, okay, enough is enough. Let's go put you in the microscope. And let's take a look at your eyeball. So I got him in the split lamp, which is the, the microscope we use to examine eyes and um, looked at his eye and it actually looked fairly normal with the exception of A, he was missing his lens. It wasn't there. There was some scar tissue uh, and some vitreous kind of behind the iris where his lens would be. And there was a small scar in the cornea off out to the, out to the side of the cornea called the limbus where, they, where the cornea meets the conjunctiva. There's a small scar. Mm -hmm. And I said, you've not had any surgery. He said, no, 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 no surgery. You've never gone to the operating room and no one's ever cut you. Nope, nothing like that. And I'm like, okay, you've got a scar on your cornea and you're missing your lens. Oh my gosh. I'm like, this doesn't just happen. You know, yeah. you, don't, you don't live in Egypt 4,000 years ago where they stuck a hot poker in your eye and pulled out your lens. What's going on? He's like, well, you know, I did get hit with a corn stalk. I'm like, you got hit with a corn stalk? And I, and it suddenly, suddenly dawned on me. I'm like, do you know what On I mean by top trauma? of it? Yeah. Well, he said, well, I, I just thought you meant by trauma that someone hit me in the eye. And, I'm, and I was like, never, I never been hit in the eye. And I'm like, okay. Uh, <laughs> I realized, you know, not all, patients don't always understand and, and, and process these terms that we use all the time as physicians, trauma mm -hmm. being one of them. He had a corn stalk that, penetrated his eye while he was wow. out in the cornfields one day 
And so, you know, they always tell you when you're in elementary school, don't pull anything out of your eye that, you know, they get stuck in your eyes, wait for the doctor to do it, put your little styrofoam cup over there, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Well, he's a farmer, you know, he, it's, he's just like, it's not working. I'm just going to cut it off. What yeah. does he do? He just pulls the thing out. Yeah. And then he went on his way. He was, <laughs> I was red and he was painful for a little bit, but eh, I just dealt with it. Yeah. He actually, uh, he performed cataract surgery on himself with a corn stalk <laughs> out, out through this little tiny scar in the side of his cornea. Those Texans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sealed up and he's like, oh, whatever. I dealt with it. And here we are 20, 20 years later. And I'm like, you don't have a cataract to take out. And he did in his other eye. That wasn't a problem. But I mean, the guy was count fingers. He couldn't see anything but the fingers, you know, in front of your face because he had no lens and he had scarring and he probably had some retinal issues too that I just couldn't see because of the scarring. But it was a, it was another reminder to me to make sure that I'm, you know, talking in a level that my patients are comfortable talking at. I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm pretty good at, at finding what the level the patient is on and being able to talk to them on that level in, in their vernacular. But at this point, and this is another time where I just kind of, you know, I figured everyone knew what trauma meant. Yeah. Um, it, trauma meant something different to him. So that was a, that was an interesting welcome back to Texas. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And you could, I could totally see that. And a Texan, a Texan farmer just being like, ah, oh, something's in my eye. You oh know, yeah. Falling I mean, out. It, no big deal. It, it didn't phase him at all. At least it didn't phase him enough to go to the doctor anyway. So, you know. Yeah. Who, who made him go to the doctor? I think it was his, his wife. wife. Yep. And that's usually the way it is. The wife drags the, hu- the husband <laughs> farmer kicking and screaming. And usually I'll, I'll have that person and I'll talk them through it. And I'll say, look, you're going to see better than you ever did. And they're in the end, they're like ecstatic that they did it, but they're all grumpy because I don't need a doctor. I've never been to a doctor. I'm just fine. You know? Yeah. So, but at least we helped him with the other eye. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And Chris, I was telling, uh, or Dr. Bustos, I was telling Chris about you taking ticks out of an <laughs> eyeball. I mean, the stuff that you see as an ophthalmologist, I don't think m- many people, they think of an eye doctor. They just think of oh, an eye doctor. That's the stuff right. that you do, right? The guy, the guy and in the you, you do get pulled in, in a lot of trauma and the most interesting types of things get caught um, or engorged inside the eyeball. Oh, just the, the, the strangest stuff, ticks, glass, metal shards, uh, fish hooks, uh, arrow, you, you name it. Yeah, it's, it's all anything you think of could, could get put in the eye and yeah. sometimes left there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if I was a medical student and I'm doing my rounds and I'm thinking about ophthalmology, what would you tell that student? I would say, make sure you consider it uh, and don't cross it off your list because you think it's too difficult to a residency to match or because you think you couldn't do that fine of a surgery or because uh, the eyes give you the willies. Uh, I initially wasn't considering ophthalmology uh, and um, I started considering other specialties like radiology or, or allergy and immunology. And it wasn't until I did my, my master's degree where I did research on the eyes uh, and started dissecting uh, orbital cadavers or cadaver, cadaver, cadaveric orbits 
for my research that I really fell in love with the eye and then started following ophthalmologists and realized this guy does some cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Fires lasers at people. He changes people's lives in 15 minutes. Uh, he gets to have a, a pretty decent lifestyle. makes a decent living. He plays cool toys. I mean, I thought this is, this is pretty good. And I, and I, and as long as I could, you know, figure out the, the real microsurgery thing, I, I of course didn't think I could do that either. Uh, I thought I could have a pretty good living. And it turns out I've had a great living and I love my career. I don't think yeah. I could do anything else in medicine uh, that would come close to the satisfaction I get with ophthalmology. Yeah. And my last question to you is you were in Tennessee and now you're in Texas. Uh, I think I spoke with you before you were in Tennessee. Um, right. uh, do you think it's important as a physician to switch it up and uh, change your practice, work with different people um, every you know, few years or every 10 years, five years? You know, do I think it's important and necessary? Not, not necessarily that the, that the surgeon changes or, or physician changes his location, because certainly the people you work with and patients you work with are all going to be revolving doors. You're never, it's, it's rare to have a, uh, a stable of, of, of people in your clinic that you always work with for 25 or 30 years. And the patients are always going to be you know, in and out. So your life is always going to change. Um, I think I once heard it told to me that the average physician or the, probably the average ophthalmologist uh, has four different practices that he or she uh, is a part of before they really kind of settle down and find their, their forever practice. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, this is number four for me. Uh, and I love where I am. Um, our, our practice is thriving. It's uh uh, meeting a critical need in the community. I, I love my patients and we got great staff, um, but I don't think you need to, if you find yeah. that one place that just meets all that for you and you know, the professional factors all work out and you love living where you live, man, I think that's ideal and that's great, but you're always going to have uh, a rotating, a revolving door of patients and employees. And so I yeah. think that always makes it interesting and unless you are just numb to the fact that the world's changing around you, yeah. even in your own in practice, uh, I think stay where you're happy. Yeah. And environmentally, you're going to see different things, different places, which is going to open you up to new cases, new types of cases and, and new things. So it's just going to yeah. expand your knowledge as a physician. Yeah. I mean, I think patients are a little bit different here in South Texas than they were in middle Tennessee. Uh, I see a lot of the same kinds of patients and, and similar pathology, but I noticed key differences too. So it, it's, it's very interesting, at least, and it kind of shakes the, you know, the, the snow globe up a little bit for me yeah. anyway. Chris, is there any last words from you you'd like to ask Dr. Bustos? Just only for the, the docs considering, for the, for the docs considering the training programs, how competitive is ophthalmology? To me, the lifestyle that you live and the income and the interesting work you do procedurally, it's got to be fairly competitive. It is. Uh, traditionally speaking, um, the competitiveness of, of residency programs is kind of like a neck and neck number one with dermatology and orthopedics are generally about the most competitive um, and ophthalmology is a close second. So it's very, very competitive. But I, I would I would recommend again if someone is considering it to you know go in uh, all in and um, and and start looking into what it takes you know start following ophthalmologist early in your medical school career and seeing if that's something that would fit your 
your lifestyle and what you want out of medicine, uh, go look for some research opportunities early. Um, and then, um, you know, start ingratiating yourself into the ophthalmology community and show some interest and, uh, and some passion for the discipline. And, you know, as long as you have the grades and the, and the, and the board scores to, you know, to back up your, your, uh, your application, I mean, there's no reason why you can't do it. Um, do I consider myself the most, the smartest ophthalmologist in the world? No. Um, but I, you know, I did a master's degree and did research in ophthalmology and that got me a, a first author on publication. Uh, and I had good board scores and I threw myself into the career and loved it. And uh, it's been an, uh, a very rewarding career, both uh, personally and professionally. Well, this has been really insightful. We do appreciate your time, Summer. Yeah, I was going to say he was even on a talk show, Doc Talk. Yes, I went on a talk, <laughs> on a talk show, a radio talk show for a while. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bustos. We're already out of time. It's 11.34, so we went over a little bit. But again, it's always a pleasure to have you on our podcast. And I know we're going to have you again. So thank you, Summer. Thank you, Chris. Sure appreciate your time. Of course. No problem. Bye. Bye. Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And a big thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast could not be possible. If you would like to be a guest, go to www.pacificcompanies.com. Thank you.